When Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted. And you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That is Luke chapter 2, and this is the Living the Word Bible podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. That heart-piercing sword that Simeon spoke of points to the pain and sorrow that Mary will experience, especially as she stands by her son at the cross. And those sorrows of hers invite us to draw close to her in our own sorrows. So as I think about Mary at the cross, I think about other women in Scripture whose faith and love of God enabled them to stand in tough times. And I have invited Katie Cavadini to talk about some of those and what we can learn from their stories. Katie is an associate teaching professor at the University of Notre Dame, and she's director of its Master of Arts program in theology. She teaches courses on the saints, scriptural interpretation, and church history. Well, thank you so much for being with us again. It's really a joy to talk to you. My pleasure. You teach scripture in undergrad classes, and you have said that you love to look for scripture alive in sacred biographies. What do you mean by that? Oh, good question. So I love this whole thing. I love, so as I said before, yes, I teach classes on scripture, but of late, I've moved towards teaching classes on the saints. Hmm. And so it was as I started doing that, that I noticed that the saints are living scriptures and that really we're all meant to be that, right? So for example, when we just pray the Our Father, we're not actually called just to say the words of the Our Father, right? We're meant to say those words because we believe them and we want to live them. So if you're thinking, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, then I'm supposed to spend my life hallowing your name Hmm. and making that evident in my own bearing and the things that I say and the things that I do. So I love the challenge of picking up a biography of a saint. Most more modern biographies anyway, they really focus on the dates and the things and right the like like data of history. Mm -hmm. But in all of that, which is beautiful and you need it, comes through sort of this mystery of the person, the mystery of the person in communion with Christ. And so we find those things spoken about in scripture. And so to put that sort of historical biography together with this scriptural and and reality of tradition as this person sort of living, I think is the only way you really come to see the personality of the saint is to hold all that together. Hmm. That's really lovely. I know as a, as a convert, I'm coming kind of late to the saints, but I think we could say all that about the the people in scripture too. I mean, they were the first saints, right? Mm-hmm. And they were living out the word of God in their own way. And we read about them in the word of God. I really would like to ask you about some of the women that you wrote about for the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, because I love a lot of the personality and, and traits and, and messages that you drew out from their lives. But first of all, I thought it might be interesting to ask, how do you actually go about writing a biography for a biblical figure? You know, what are the kind of challenges that you face or your your end goal in doing that? Okay, so sometimes the challenges are really basic, right? Because when we read someone's life story, 
we look for, as I said, a lot of these historical and sort of biographical pieces of information, right? Data about this person. Yeah. Uh, and we don't always get that from the Bible, right? Sometimes the Bible, as it was being written, probably assumed uh, maybe some of these things or didn't necessarily find them the most important part of someone's life to tell us. So there are a few um, women who I wrote about whose names we don't actually even know. So pretty primary kind of basic information. We don't have. So you're working in the absence of things that you know people want to know, especially us modern minds who are reading these texts, right? Like, what do you mean I don't even know this person's name? And now you're going to tell me their life story? And that's supposed <laughs> to matter. I'm supposed to feel connected with this person in a way in which it would move me in my faith life? Like, well, yeah. So then there's also just the scriptural text to be dealing with as a piece of scripture. So I want to tell you about a person who's spoken about by scripture itself. So that's both a, a challenge in a hard way and a challenge in a beautiful way, right? Because scripture has a purpose, which is to reveal to us the hidden purpose of God's will, right? The very mystery of his love for us. So this person the way in which they lived and the way in which that life was captured by the scriptural text is meant to reveal to us, not necessarily that person, and I don't even know their name sometimes, but the way in which they lived out or lived according to that mystery of love. So we're always looking for that truth as it's captured by that life. So I, I was kind of talking before, right, about how the life of a saint is a living scripture when you're dealing with scripture, you have a couple things going on, right? Someone who was a saint who lived a life that then got captured for a particular purpose within the scriptural text. And then you're trying to sort of uncover that and portray not just that reality, but also then the person who lived it so that we are ourselves challenged, as I said before, to, to also become a living witness. So your goal to not only uncover some of those basic facts, but even in the absence of them, to be able to say, okay, what's in this for me? What can I learn by the witness of this person's life? Yeah, what what is here that's meant to be moving me, right? Mm -hmm. Someone thought that, you know, the Shunammite woman's life was something that we should leave for everyone to read and to see in it the truth of God's love for us and his mercy upon us. And so how can I give a personality to this person who clearly had one and communicate at the same time this reality, which should have shaped her personality, right? So to work with all those kind of contours that are that were both lived and then written and then meant to be read so as to be lived, you have to, you know, not play with those things, but be creative enough with them and true enough to them at the same time. And that I imagine is part of the struggle because you want to stay true to the text and yet you need to be imaginative around that to to see what you can learn. So let, let's talk about some of those women. And the first one I want to ask you about maybe isn't one that many people would think about, but I thought about her as I thought about Mary at the foot of the cross. And that is an Old Testament woman. Uh, in Actually, it's in the book of Second Maccabees, the mother of seven sons who very bravely stood by as her sons, one after another, were martyred for refusing to eat pork at the time. And then finally, she's martyred herself. So what can we learn about her? And how do we learn that? Well, we learn about her, I think, in part by trying to draw near to the text and to kind of be in its circumstance. 
which is not given the story necessarily one that we want to draw near to, right? <laughs> one that we would probably want to avoid and not have to let into our heart or to our mind. But that mother, in sort of standing there and in encouraging her sons with the truth of God's love, she invites you in, right? Like sometimes the lives of the martyrs, they're both difficult and they're so attractive hmm. because you're awed at first anyway by the strength of their witness, right? Like you kind of feel like, could I, could I have done that? I don't know that I could have done that. I think I would have crossed my fingers and said like, no, <laughs> I don't believe. Describe a little bit of what you see in her because people may not have read that passage. Uh, okay, so... I think that in scripture, and this goes both in Maccabees and also when you get to something like the book of Revelation, um, what you see in a woman like this mother of the seven sons, and also in the seven sons, is, is patient endurance. Hmm. Right? The martyrs are always talking about being patient and in enduring. And our mind goes straight to, well, they were patient and they endured a lot of suffering. But the text isn't really necessarily just talking about that. Yes, it's, it's showing you everything they endured, but they're also enduring in love. And so I think that the mother did that. And she did it, obviously, in two ways. I mean, her seven sons in front of her eyes were martyred, right? And she stood by each one of them. She couldn't leave them. But she also, at the same time, endured in her love for God and could sort of continue even to nourish her children with that love so that they could also endure the suffering that they experienced, right? So she is a mother in that story in more than one way, actually, right? Yes, these are her sons, and I'm sure with, with excruciating sorrow, she stood there, but at the same time, with such love that they were themselves able to complete the race if we want to borrow Paul, right? And, and love God to the end. Her witness is so incredibly powerful because I mean, you have children. I have four children. I have stood by when they suffered, one in particular who spent a lot of time in the hospital and other types of suffering that they've had. And I can imagine that most mothers seeing their children tortured for their faith might be tempted to say, hey, just eat that piece of pork. <laughs> you know, can't you just just save your life? You know, it won't matter or something. And yet she inspires them with such courage to stay true to God. And do, do you remember, I don't know if you have it in front of you, do you remember some of the things she says it, that kind of bolster their faith? I don't remember exactly. I, I remember, I think it's the, the final son. She encourages him to actually already see around him, right? God's peace and God's love. Mm -hmm. And so like these texts that are kind of apocalyptic, meaning that they, they are texts that sort of challenge our vision of reality is larger than that, which we see, right? She's feeding him a vision of something larger than what he's experiencing that speaks to really what and who he is as a son of God. And so eating pork seems kind of trivial in that light, maybe. Even though it seems like this is a small thing, maybe I, I could just do it. No, right? These things matter in the expression of our, of our love for God and for one another. And so in giving him that larger vision, just in a few words, I think he's able to see what he's doing. And I think, as if I recall it correctly, 
that lar- larger vision includes the fact that there's some kind of life thereafter in which God will judge. And, you know, do you want to go against this particular ruler who's, you know, has you on the rack right now? Or do you want to go against the God <laughs> who has your life in his hands for eternity and who loves you? And she speaks about how he created everything. And uh, I just remember the great love of God that she conveys to them to help give them that bigger spec- perspective to enable them to stand true in that trial. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, she's a woman of great faith. How do you think then her witness can encourage us or inspire us? Hopefully we have no children who will have to be tortured in that way that her children were. But are there everyday situations that this can help us in? In any situation, it's good to keep that larger vision before our eyes that she offers to her sons, especially if it means that we can see that all of reality is is shot through with God's love, right? If that's true, then we can find encouragement in any situation because we have hope in every situation that what the world is made for and what I'm made for is something that sort of transcends any experience. And that's simply love, right? The human person, that's what they're made for. Mm. And it can be easy to forget that. And it can be really hard to deal with even trivial things in everyday life and kind of feel overwhelmed and anxious and to, you know, just struggle. But then again, patience and endurance. It's not just in those things. It's also in love. Well, I often wonder if Mary thought about her as she stood by the cross, because their stories are similar, you know, in a way. And as she stood there, we don't know what she said or if she, you know, said anything, but she stood. She didn't fall down in a heap and sob. You know, she had faith and courage. I wonder a little bit, you know, even just as you're reading the passage from Luke, Simeon has sort of a place in my (laughs) imagination because at night prayer, right, you say, Lord, now let your servant go in peace, right? Mm -hmm. And so these are the words of Simeon. And so he's just said this to Our Lady, right? That you're, you'll have these sorrows. And then she can hear him saying, right? Lord, now let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. Oh, nice. I never thought of that. And so I kind of wondered too, if Mary had the echo in her mind, even amidst the struggles, because that's sort of what we see in the woman from Maccabees as well, right? To be able to tell her son. Creator created you, right? And there's more than this. Hmm. Another woman who we know that Mary thought of, uh, at one time at least, was Hannah, because Mary's Magnificat echoes Hannah's song quite a bit, Hannah from the Old Testament. What's her story, and what gave her what she needed to stand, do you think? Yeah, so so Hannah was barren. You know, we, we encountered characters and characters. It sounds like they're just a story. <laughs> You encounter these women in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, who have these experiences of barrenness. And so Hannah is one of these women. And she's really distraught by this, right? And she goes to the temple and she prays. And she's praying so ardently that the people watching her think that maybe she had a little too much to drink. (laughs) This prayer is granted and she's given a son. And the son is Samuel. And... Samuel ends up being given right back to the service of the temple. But at this point, you know, Hannah is no longer distraught and it is not seemingly from the story 
hard for her to give her son back to the temple, right? This is a thanksgiving. This is a joy. This is an offering that she can gladly give. And she doesn't lose touch with him by doing it, right? She returns every year to see him. So Hannah has um, an interesting story, especially if, if Mary's remembering her in a moment in which she has this miraculous experience of a child, even though we're not told beforehand that she was barren, right? She's a virgin. Yeah. We wouldn't have known this. But it's impossible still. You know, the humanly speaking, it's an, another impossible child. Right. I think about Hannah and I think about the sorrows that she had. You know, we really get a lot of detail in her story. It's actually uh, an extraordinary amount of detail, I think. To begin with, her sister-in-law, Penina, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, just bugs the daylights out of her, teases her constantly because it's like, I have children and you don't. <laughs> you know, she's just cruel and she she needles her so much that Hannah gets, you know, put to tears. So she's crying because her sister-in-law has given her, it's not her sister-in-law, it's the other wife of her husband. So it's, you know, they're both wives to the same husband. So there's this this pain of just being, you know, feeling inferior and, uh, you know, unfulfilled and all of this stuff that she's going through. But then after she has Samuel, I find it remarkable that she happily gives him back to the temple because, you know, the priest thought she was drunk. His sons are carrying on with women at the temple. You know, the place where she is sending him to be raised might be the temple, but it is not a good place. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think of how often we have to give our kids to places where we're not sure it's going to be such a good place. You know, maybe it's the school that they're going to when they're young. Maybe it's college. But Hannah was giving him to God and was able to trust him in that situation. And I think that is just a beautiful thing. Yeah, it also says something, I think, about Hannah and the way that she, her sort of identity comes to fruition through prayer and through her trust in God. Like when you're talking about, you know, having to give your children over to school, for example, our oldest, her name's Anna, and she's 11 now. But I remember when she had to go to kindergarten, so our kids well, Anna, anyway, didn't go to any preschool. So this was like the first moment a child was going to be handed over to school. I couldn't take her. I was just like, Anthony, you're going to have to do this. And now my husband finds things that are very beautiful. Uh, he gets tearful easily. I don't actually get tearful as easily, but I still made him do it. And so he took Anna and he left her at the kindergarten. And he came home and I think he wept for about four hours, like basically till we had to go back and pick her up. And I felt so bad that I had made him do that. But part of it was you're also giving yourself over, right? Because I'm your mom. I'm your dad. And that's part of my identity, right? And so to kind of sacrifice that to give your child over to something larger, that was hard. But with Hannah, you see her so joyful, right? So to me, through my own experience of having to entrust my child to something other than myself, just a school, it says something to me about her and how her identity is formed. Hmm. Partly, yes, as a mother, she longed for that. But here, you know, also, again, like the woman in Maccabees, mothering something or being a part of mothering something that's larger than herself. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's worth spending a little time in her, in her experience, in her story, and watching when she's so distraught because of the, you know, annoyance of Penina and so on and her, and her 
complete upset over not being able to have a child, how she goes directly to God and she seeks him in the temple and she prays her heart out. I mean, she puts so much of herself into it that the priest thinks she's drunk, as you said. Mm -hmm. But spending some time with meditating on the way she prays and how she prays and the words she uses, I think can help to strengthen us in our prayer when we're in similar situations. So worth just kind of hanging out. It's what is it? First uh, Samuel, the first couple chapters, I think it is. So um, moving on to another woman and thinking again about Mary standing at the cross, she's not the only woman who's standing there. You know, one of them was somebody named Salome. And I wonder uh, if you can talk about her a little bit. She's one of the women that you wrote about for the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. Yeah. So am I allowed to say that Salome was one of the trickier ones that I, I felt like I had to write about? Oh, please do. Why was she tricky? <laughs> She's trickier because you, you have to piece her together, not just from a chapter or two from First Samuel, for example, but you kind of have to work on her across the different gospels. She appears here and she appears there and she appears here. And so you, you kind of have to glean the details of who Salome is and, and kind of just put her biography together. So I enjoyed working on Salome in that way. It was tricky, but sort of moving around between the Gospels and seeing how Salome sort of came into form, right? She was delineated, her personality. Yeah, and who, who was she? So she is um, one of the women who is standing near the cross when Christ dies. But backing up, right, the reason why she ends up there is because of her own children. So we see her as the mother of a family that runs a, um, like, basically a fishing business, right? They go out and they, they have their boats and they go out and they catch the fish. But um, then we see that her sons are called to be Christ's disciples. He's walking on the shore, right? And he calls them right out of the boats. So scripture has a lot of words for us, but scripture also has a lot of silences for us. So part of what I also tried to kind of think a little bit about when I wrote that story was, what was Salome doing when this happened? You know, when Christ comes along and they've, they work together on this, this family venture, and he comes along and calls the sons away. And Can you name her sons? Sure. So Salome's sons are James and John, called in scripture as sons of thunder. And so it's actually significant that we know that these are her sons. Thank you for asking. Um, because John, for one, we know is named in the Gospels as someone else who's at the foot of the cross, right? So we have Mary, with whom we began thinking at this podcast, um, but also John. And also Salome, who's looking on. Salome, isn't she the mother who comes up to Jesus and asks if her sons, James and John, can sit by him when he takes his throne in his kingdom? She does. She's very forward in that way, it seems. <laughs> yeah. So what, what did you learn about her personality there? Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways you could expect this kind of thing of a mother. I'm not a very good mother on that front where I would sort of be bold. But she seems to have a boldness to her, Salome. And again, like, I wonder if this is also just part of her kind of watching as a mother might, right? So mm. they're running their fishing business. James and John are called to follow Christ. Did she see that and what happened? Because it seems that she also somehow at some point in the silences of scripture picked up and also has been following Christ, right? Here she is speaking on behalf of her sons. There she is at the cross. Like I said, she appears here and there, right? As you move through the narrative, the larger narrative. So yeah, I think a, a motherly boldness is present in Solomon. Yeah. And also standing there 
in a great time of of sorrow and suffering and probably fear and uh, you know when you when you give that background i have to think what is this mother thinking standing by the cross and her son is there and you know that he's close enough to jesus that you have asked if he can sit by him on his throne and here jesus is dying and then did she hear jesus say behold your mother to her son to the other mother <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we can glean anything from that at all. But I think she must have been not only bold, but also a true follower of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. also, that she could kind of hold some of these things that she didn't understand and ponder them. I like your picture of the situation, right? And what it kind of draws out in terms of what one can imagine about the psychology of the moment. But also, like... You know, if we see Salome has ended up there because she's been watching and she's been observing. Maybe when she actually asked that bold question, she had some kind of foresight hmm. about what larger question that could be. And also in the story, as I actually wrote it, I tried to sort of play on this idea of a family you know, business <laughs> where they are in boats and they're fishing because, you know, what the sons are called to do in the church after his death is to be part of this new ship called the church and to mm. play to fish, of course, not for fish. You know, if, if Christ saying to Mary, behold your son and to John, behold your mother is an image already of the church, then Salome sort of takes her place in the house mm. with her sort of son. Who's now a fellow disciple. As much as she's following Christ, she's, she's following her son who heard him and, and went, dropped his nets and went. There's actually so much texture there to kind of work on and think about and imagine. This just occurs to me in light of our conversation about Hannah. She too is giving her son to the, she's giving her son to the church, her son to the Lord in a difficult, difficult situation and having the faith to do that for the better good because she loves God and because she loves Jesus. I think we're seeing actually in all these stories, including the the woman from Maccabees, why motherhood is a good image for the church and why language that's linked to it and the way in which it nurtures and and gives life. And right. It's sort of seems very natural. Hmm. So Katie, if we have time for one more, I would love to look at the young woman named Sarah. This is uh, not Abraham's wife that I'm thinking of, but uh, Sarah in the book of Tobit. You know, she's somebody who had a lot of tragedy in her life. She gets married. I'm sure that was a very happy night until her husband died on that first night before they consummated their marriage. And then one after another, like six or seven husbands die on their wedding night. And so it's like she's cursed. Even the maidservants in her father's house kind of taunt her for that fact. Thinking about her, I know you wrote a little bit about her. What emerged to you about her and the way that she handled that sorrow and what we can learn from her story? Yeah. So when we meet Sarah, as we can easily imagine, I think she's sort of in the depths of her sorrow. This would be sorrowful if it happened just once. Right, but with Sarah now seven times over, she's experienced this grief, and so she, you know, she dwells in that grief for a moment. Of course, in that sorrow, she she stays in that for a moment. But we sort of quickly see that she speaks to God and she praises Him. So this is a very 
striking person to enter into the depths of her sorrow. And she sort of even offers that up in prayer, right? Thinks about that sorrow as she speaks to God. But then we see her slowly moving into this act of praise. Hmm. Well, before I said quickly, because I think it's more quickly than, than I could ever muster, right? But this transition of moving from that sorrow to this place of praise. I could read to you a little bit of what I wrote about this moment. Oh, sure. Sarah's praise, blessed are you, O Lord, rises from a heart filled with sorrow. She was deeply grieved in spirit and wept. Indeed, she wept for herself, having just suffered the reproach of the household servants, the death of her seven husbands, one after another. She was ready to take the servants' words to heart, go with them, die. It is with death surrounding her and death facing her that Sarah exclaims, Blessed are you, O Lord, merciful God. How absolutely striking then is Sarah's praise. In her hour of darkness, she asked God to bring her up out of her sorrow. Further, her praise was an act of compassion. This brings another element of the story in. In her grief, she did not dwell on herself, but on both God, her creator father, and her own dad. Indeed, her grieved spirit knew what her father would feel if she were to die. Her compassion and her words were joined in praising the Lord. So I guess in that little description there from the story that was written for the Bible, Sarah is a rich soul, Hmm. right? She has experienced a lot of sorrow. And that's linked, though, with her ability to be compassionate, right? To basically suffer with another and to understand that. And so she recognizes that and is able to praise God and to say thank you. Right, to say thank you to the creator of her life, even in this moment of great sorrow. Which maybe is a, a kind of a thread that goes through all of these. You have brought out compassion and love as a theme in all of them. And I think about that verse that says that perfect love casts out fear. And the kind of sorrow that these women were facing was also filled with fear. But look at how their love and their compassion for somebody else kind of took them out of that situation and gave them perspective that enabled them to not fear and to stand. Hopefully, we can do that also and learn from them. All of them are a beautiful witness to nurturing love, right? Which is what feeds our compassion for others, right? To, to go out of ourselves to them. And you see all of these women do that in a different way. One of the things that I felt benefited by in, in reading about all these women and trying to kind of delineate their personalities and the way in which they present sort of the truth of the mystery of our faith is that I just felt companions. Hmm. As ecclesial souls, as members of the church, we're never alone. And sometimes we don't remember that. And we're never alone, even in this whole sort of mystical communion that we that we live in. So I I treasure that part of my getting to know each of these women. Thank you for for sharing that. That's a good truth for us all to remember. Before we go, can you give us your favorite verse? It can be something that that is related to this or something not. Do you have a go-to place that you love to dwell on? So when we're sitting at Mass as a family, often overhear my husband. So when we're getting ready for communion, you know, he'll be praying. Silently, but not very silent. 
And he has some phrases from the Song of Songs that he likes to say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, which I find very beautiful. But I have a simpler one, which is just, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Because mm. to me, it expresses sort of what we're, what we're about, right? That I'm always trying to understand better this mystery that's communicated of God's love so that I can try, even though I often feel like I'm not doing a great job, um, but I can try to live it, you know, compassionately for others, mercifully for others, to kind of mother that along as best I can. Hmm. But uh, maybe one important part is that since we've been talking about all these women, women, um, that this is a father. Ah, nice. I mean, Mark's gospel is fun. Mark's gospel is fun. It's vivid. It's active, right? Like immediately, suddenly, and then this, and then that. And then another thing, like Christ is always out there. And you see all this activity that surrounds him and that um, is giving life to the kingdom of God, right? As he's bringing it about through all these beautiful acts of mercy that are the miracles that are happening all over in the gospel of Mark. And so in this case, right, you have a father who's come and to ask on behalf of his child, right, that Christ would come and help him. And so Christ does come and help him. And so the father's in the midst of this situation, right, both sorrowing and seeing the healing and salvation that Christ is going to bring. And he's saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm. And so I think you know, even in that situation, he's saying that, and it's sort of a, a model for us in thinking, yes, this is something that we should always know that we need to ask. I believe, yes, but Lord, help my unbelief. I think that actually goes nicely with what we've been talking about, because a lot of times what suffering does is it causes us not to believe, to believe. We lose faith in our Father somehow. And with all that we have, we can hang on and say, I do believe, help my unbelief. So I'll read part of the story along with that verse for people just to meditate on while I read it. And then I will say a prayer to close us up. And this is uh, Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to start with verse 20 and read to 24. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. They brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has he had this? And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray, Heavenly Father, for everyone who's listening, especially those who are suffering or have family members who are, who may have trouble believing you or having faith or standing by them. I pray that you will strengthen their faith, that you will hear their cries, stand by them in their pain, and comfort them. Thank you for your word and for the life and the strength that it brings. 
Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in Scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. And Our Lady of Sorrows, pray for us. Thank you, Katie, for sharing your insights into these biblical women, both here and also in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. And I'm so glad that you read a paragraph because you really have a lovely writing style. I will encourage people to go to your name back in the index of the Bible and look up. Yeah, you wrote a whole string of them. I don't know, 10 or 12 or something, biographies of women along with some other uh, essays and so on. It would make kind of a nice little private Bible study to go through those one by one, maybe read your reflection, but then read the scripture, read the story, and just meditate and see what you learn from these women whose biographies she's shown a little light on. So thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I guess just that most of the ones I wrote, friends, are sort of the unknown women of the Bible, sort of smaller characters, some of whom don't even have names. So when we feel maybe a little bit hidden, they're good to turn to them and see. They showed up in scripture. Yeah, nice, nice. And thank you for for doing that. That was a labor of love on your part that I appreciate. Oh, I appreciate (laughs) it so much. So you're very welcome. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And I hope you'll join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's word. And you can also join our growing Instagram community at Living the Word Bible and hop in on the questions that we ask. Give your opinion or share something that you've learned. I would love to hear from you. The Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible and its new companion journal, which you can write your reflections about these women as you read about them in the Bible. They're available through the end of the year to podcast listeners for a special price, $5 off of each and free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast, all one word. And God bless you as you read His Word.